Welcome to Men Talk, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of miscarriage, infertility, infant loss, and stillbirth. Hosted by Daniel Landau, founder of menshelpline.org, we'll be sitting down every week with real guys to discuss their stories, struggles, and triumphs. So grab a drink, sit tight, and let's talk. Hello, everyone, and welcome to an exciting episode of the Men Talk podcast, where men talk about miscarriage, infant loss, stillbirth, and infertility. Today's guest is someone very exciting. His name is Keegan Prue. He lives in upstate New York, and he's actually very excited to be on the show because he's releasing a new book, the July 1st on Amazon, called The IVF Dad. Keegan, welcome to the show. Feel free to introduce yourself, tell us a little about your story, your journey, your new book, and uh, we'll go from there. The floor is yours. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. Well, I'm I'm really excited to be here. I really um, I'm just so thankful for what you're doing. I, I was uh, saying before we got started here, I feel like there's a great growing number of men out there who are trying to bring attention to this really difficult topic and experience that so many of us go through, uh, but um, for for whom there's not necessarily the same level of support. So uh, it's just really important work, and that's why I'm so glad to be here. Um, you know, for, for me, I think my, my story is pretty, pretty typical for, uh, folks who've been through infertility. You know, my wife and I started to, um, try to have kids about five years ago. And, uh, after about a year quickly kind of realized that things were not, uh, things were not happening. And from there, um, you know, we're pretty proactive. We were both in our, uh, early to mid thirties at the time. So we kind of knew the clock was ticking, wanted to have at least a couple of kids if we could manage that. Um, and so went right into getting tested, you know, my, my wife getting tested, me getting tested, semen analysis, all of that work up, um, just to see kind of what was going on, which led us to IVF, uh, for, for us in particular, uh, my wife, uh, Olivia had some degree of diminished ovarian reserve. So our RE was very direct that IVF would give us the best shot. Uh, we were very fortunate to be in a position at the time where my insurance covered, several cycles of IVF. Um, so we, we jumped in and, uh, you know, that set us uh, on a path of another about three years uh, to the point where we were very fortunate to welcome uh, our daughter Eliza in July, 2020. But uh, along the way that we did two rounds of IVF, uh, had two miscarriages along the way, um, certainly had times where we, we really thought about, you know, what is the best route for us to become parents uh, and also just dealt with, uh, a lot of grief and a lot of hard times. Um, and so, um, definitely noticed as, as you've mentioned again, kind of when we were talking before, and I've certainly heard from lots of other men who've been through this experience, there were a lot of resources there. Um, it felt like that were sort of designed by women for women, but it was much harder for me to kind of find and connect with other men who'd been through the same thing. And, um, you know, I certainly learned that as we opened up about what we were going through, um, we kind of first just found out how common it is. I mean, it's, it's shocking to learn how common it is and how many people in our lives that as we opened up about what we were going through, we learned that they had been through the same thing. Um, and so it, uh, it really, you know, as we kind of moved into again, being really lucky to, to have our daughter and, um, and now kind of thinking about hopefully uh, adding a, another baby to the family. Um, it's been great to be open about the, the, the journey. Uh, and I think that it's so important for, for men to share what the process was like for them because it can feel very lonely. And so uh, that's really what led me to, to write my book, The IVF Dad. Um, I wanted to have kind of a dedicated resource out there 
uh, that's really written from uh, the man's perspective. Um, it's certainly not just for men, right? I think the book would be really helpful for couples, for men, for for women who want to kind of help out their their male partners. Um, but the the book really shares both my story because I think storytelling is such a powerful way to illustrate uh, and hopefully let other folks feel more empowered about how to kind of manage this really difficult situation. But also provides a lot of information. So, you know, in the chapter where I'm kind of telling the story about how we chose which fertility clinic we're going to go through, uh, it kind of pairs our story with uh, what are some of the criteria and, and questions and things that you might want to talk about with your partner. So it's trying to really marry both telling that story so you can hopefully, so others can relate to it, but also providing some resources and really concrete things that hopefully will be real useful for, for men and couples out there to manage this really difficult time uh, with, with hopefully a little bit more ease and grace. It's really exciting. I'm really glad you wrote the book. It's actually interesting that you're saying that um, you want it to be resourced not just for men going through it, but for women. Because a lot of times I hear that women, they're listening to the podcast. It's helpful to them because they really just don't understand what's going through their spouse's head. You know, what what is a man thinking throughout this entire journey? How How are you supposed to be there for them going through like? What's going through your your mind, your head, your thoughts? How yeah. do you deal with it? Depression, the anxiety, everything that, that that goes through the process, the ups and the downs. So that's really totally. that's really great. Yeah, what, and it goes back to the whole like it's the cliche, but men are from Mars, women are from Venus. It's that's an oversimplification, of course, but um, you know, one of my friends at some point in the process is something that really stuck with me, which is that IVF kind of or just kind of fertility treatment in general, not just IVF, but it really flips traditional um, roles and kind of gender stereotypes on their head. Because we know when you're going through through fertility treatment uh, as a couple, you know, sure, there are definitely situations where men have to, you know, go through some, some pretty intensive procedures and things like that. But for the most part, that physical burden is falling on the woman in the relationship. Uh, they have to be incredibly physically strong to to deal with shots and lots of drugs and hormones and all of these crazy things going through the body, not to mention just like hopefully getting to pregnancy, which is a really intense physical experience. Um, then on the other hand, the, the man through all this is asked to be basically in an emotional support role. So these, the, the totally flips on the head are kind of traditional gender stereotypes, um, which, you know, that could be like a whole discussion in and of itself, not saying that's right or wrong, but, um, you know, it, it calls on men to really tap into figuring out how to deal with that, uh, both emotionally supporting themselves and their partner, uh, which I think is not something that society really typically prepares us for. So it's a great opportunity to learn, but it's hard. It can be really hard. So you say that society doesn't prepare us for it, which I think that's a hundred percent a true statement because even if you look at the education system, they never once spoke about what IVF was or infertility or miscarriage. You traditionally say the sperm meets the egg and you have a baby, you know, just don't get pregnant as high schools to take birth control. Yeah. Don't be stupid. Right. That's the connotation that, yep. that, that is being talked about. Now abortion laws and all the crazy things. Nobody oh, ever yeah. talks about the IVF, the infertility, the miscarriage, because everybody thinks yeah. it's just going to happen one, two, three. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying, it's, it's just so true. Like society, now society is starting to talk about it. Men are starting to be open about it. But I'm curious to know, before you jumped into your IVF journey and had the miscarriage, what was your view on IVF? Did you think about IVF? Did you think it would happen to you? Did you, did you, 
want to know about it? Did you speak to other people? Or was it just like a, a shock? Okay, we're having trouble getting conceiving. Let's get tested. Let's do the whole semen analysis, see what happens, find out yeah. this deal. Right, like, yeah. what, what was going through your mind? <clears throat> I knew I knew absolutely nothing about IVF before getting into this. Um, <laughs> didn't, didn't know anything about that. As you said, uh, you know, I feel like I left high school health class with this paralyzing fear that even if, if I even like looked the wrong way at a woman, she might get pregnant. Um, so the idea that there could be difficulties was, was sure. Like it's in the back of your mind. You, you kind of will casually hear about it. You know, maybe you see it in a TV show or a movie, or, um, maybe you, you know, meet somebody in your family who happens to be going through it or, or maybe a friend or something. But, um, that was not the case for me. I didn't know anything much about it except like IVF. That's the test tube baby thing, right? Like that's uh that's something that, you know, is very rare and, and nobody, and I don't know anybody who uses it or where I'd go to get it. Um, so it, it came as very much a shock. And so, um, you know, not only was it just a shock and, and there's sort of this first piece of just emotionally dealing with the fact that this thing of having a baby that, that everybody kind of assumes is just, you know, bing, bang, boom, it just happens um, is not happening. Um, but then there is that piece too, of just becoming familiar with all of the information, research, science, uh, behind how fertility treatment works. And even just at a very basic level, you know, what you said is so true that, uh, I don't think education systems and, and particularly kind of high school health classes prepare people very well for understanding how you could get pregnant. Uh, once you, you know, are at a point in your life where you're kind of you know, ready to do that. Um, I, I even have friends and certainly this, this was something we learned too, um, before kind of proceeding toward like, you know, uh, more intensive interventions, even just kind of the fact that there's a right time of month to have sex that gives you the best chance to conceive. Um, certainly something that, that was not covered in health class that I remember. And, you know, all this makes sense in retrospect, but, uh, yeah, it's so true. There's, there's a great apparatus to, to, kind of teach kids how not to get pregnant, but um, there's not that much information out there that's that's sort of proactively given. So, so yeah, it was hard. And, and like I said, I think the hardest thing is you're both managing um, just getting that information, um, but also just working through, you know, what an emotional experience of just coming to terms with something that you expected for so long, not being easy. It is. How did you deal with that? I mean, once you came to terms with it, what did you do? Yeah, one one thing that was super helpful, um, you know, I'm I'm kind of a research guy. I like to get as much information as I can. Um, and so despite the fact that there wasn't necessarily a lot of resources out there sort of designed or or for or by men, I would say, um, there are a lot of good existing resources and podcasts and blogs and things like that that were helpful. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time on my commutes just listening to, um, you know, infertility podcasts and kind of learning what is an IVF? What is, what is IUI? What's the difference between those two and why might you go with one versus the other? Um, and so that was kind of a crash course education and just understanding, um, what are the treatment options out there? And also what are the causes, uh, behind infertility? Cause that was certainly something I didn't understand either. I didn't know that there were, um, it could be male factor. It could be something to do with, um, with, with the woman. It could be a mix of both. And, and they're also, you know, as we know, so many pr- different combinations, permutations of, um, of what's going on. And all of that then leads to all this other medical information of, you know, 
all all the the acronyms right it's kind of the, like the common joke in the fertility community but it's like a million acronyms you need to learn IVF IUI DOR ICSI PGT you know there's so many of these things and so just really doing that time to kind of research and listen to podcasts and just become comfortable with the language and the process and the possible diagnoses the possible treatments was really helpful because that helped me feel uh, I think first it was it was an opportunity to kind of bond uh, for me and Olivia over the difficulty and just know what are we facing. Um, and I think seeing it as that partnership from the beginning was so key where we were both kind of doing that research. We were both doing what we could to learn more about the process. And so we could discuss it um, really helped us kind of feel on equal footing from the beginning. And I, I would definitely recommend that to um, to anybody who's kind of earlier on in the journey is, is one of the first steps is just kind of learning about the process itself. Um, because that's going to help you a lot, uh, because then you can kind of be clear to go to the other step of the process, which is just dealing with the emotions you're going to feel during this really hard time. I'm glad you actually said that you listened to podcasts about it, because I hear a lot of the times that people aren't necessarily listening to podcasts about it. They wind up going down the dark rabbit hole that WebMD. And once you go down the dark rabbit hole of WebMD or, or Dr. Google, you wind up with all this information yep. of what can go wrong and what are the side effects and how it doesn't necessarily always work. And it creates yep. that very dark, down-driven path that's not good. So the fact that you listen to podcasts, I mean, that and gathering information that way, that, that's, a huge, that's a huge plus and definitely a good piece of advice to people. Yeah. And I think the power in it, just just like we're doing here, is people sharing their stories is one of the best ways to learn. You know, somebody's story is not necessarily going to be exactly how your story plays out. Um, but every time I heard a different story of somebody going through infertility, whether they ended up um, pursuing adoption or surrogacy or uh, something completely different or, or, you know, we're at a point in their journey where they hadn't found success yet, I still learned something from it. Um, and if nothing else, I, I left listening to that feeling like, okay, it's not just me. There's There's other people out there. Um, which is so important because again, it can be really, really lonely. Um, and so as hard as it can feel to connect with other people, um, I think that listening to podcasts at first helped me just understand, okay, this is actually normal. A lot of people go through this and it's set up, even though it was kind of a journey to feel more comfortable sharing it with close friends and family. Um, just hearing those stories at first helped me realize, okay, it's not just me. I'm not just alone in this. Like there's a lot of other people out in the world going through this. That's exactly right. And the statistics show that one, a couple struggle with infertility. So that means the guy to the left, the guy to your right could be going through it. And one in four pregnancies ended in a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. One in 160 births ended in a stillbirth. And one in a thousand babies die of SIDS. And there's tons of infant loss. So guys, if you're listening out there, remember, you are not alone because you look to your left, you look to your right. It could happen to anyone. It's, it's, it's something that happens, something that you shouldn't be afraid of, ashamed of. You should be able to talk about it freely without feeling like you're going to be judged because it is so popular. And yeah. to touch on what you're saying about the emotions, there is that emotional piece aside from that informational stage. So the fact that you had open communications, you were able to talk about it and now even write a book about your experience to help others. It's just, that's just really powerful. Yeah. And it's definitely, it's definitely a journey. Um, it doesn't all happen at once. Uh, and there's definitely that, that process at the beginning. You know, I think the first step is, is just coming to terms with the fact that you are going through this issue of infertility. Uh, you know, that's a big step in and of itself. And, but I think what can help so much with that is exactly what you were just saying is, um, 
you know, not only knowing those statistics of how common this is, um, but when you feel comfortable starting to share this with, with family, friends, maybe just one close friend, um, you know, I've, I've always been amazed and, and everybody I've kind of talked to who's gone through this always kind of says the same thing, right? You, you make that first step of sharing and it's like the floodgates open. Suddenly, you know, like this person down the street and this neighbor and this friend and this, you know, this aunt, this uncle, whoever, um, suddenly you become aware that this is, you know, the, the club that nobody talks about, um, but that so many people have experienced, uh, one of the things, one of the things that happened to us kind of earlier in our, um, journey was that we, uh, as part of national infertility awareness week, a few years back, um, shared our story in our local newspaper, um, and, you know, that night that the article came out, we ended up running into a couple of neighbors on the street and a, a couple of colleagues at work happened to see the article, too, and came to share their story of, of going through infertility and uh, miscarriages and, and other difficulties. Um, and that was a real eye opening moment to to make those statistics that you recounted come alive. And um, you're exactly right. There was, you know, people who I'd passed by and chatted with dozens and dozens of times or hundreds of times in the case of some of my colleagues. And then I was like, wow, you've been going through the same thing uh, in some cases in literally the same time frame that we were. Um, and it provided such an opportunity for connection. It definitely does. What was your first phone call? I should say, who did you call first when you found it? Okay. Now we're going to have to embark on this IVF journey. Okay. We did an embryo transfer. We got pregnant, you know, it failed. You had a miscarriage. Who did you reach out to first and why? Uh, let's see. So, you know, with our two miscarriages, they were, I think it's important to kind of talk about how they happen because it's, it's not always the same, right? It can be really different experiences. Our first pregnancy loss, um, was kind of like a slow rolling, <laughs> really difficult, like drawn out experience, um, because it was an IVF transfer. And we, we ended up in, in beta limbo, which is again, kind of one of those IVF terms, right? But after uh, an embryo transfer, you draw beta to see basically what's the, the level of HCG is, is the woman pregnant basically. Um, and, and then typically IVF clinics look at that number every couple of days thereafter to see is that number doubling. So with our first um, pregnancy, which turned into our first loss, that number wasn't doubling. Uh, and so, um, but the number was creeping up over a couple of weeks. So we, we were in this really kind of drawn out, difficult situation where, you know, in, in retrospect, I totally understand because what the IVF clinic was telling us, which was that we just don't know how this is going to play out. It may be totally fine. It may be that you're headed toward a pregnancy loss. And so it ended up being about three or four weeks of kind of being in that beta limbo um, until we hit the point where they could actually do an ultrasound to diagnose what was happening. And, and they saw at that point that there was no development of the embryo. So they could actually say, you know, this is the miscarriage. This is not going to result in a, in a healthy pregnancy. Um, and so with that experience of our first miscarriage, I think there was first just sort of, sort of like the shock again of like, this is actually happening to us, but it was also the kind of drawn out difficulty Um and so to kind of get back to your question, the first time we actually kind of opened up about what was happening there, um, <clears throat> you know, because this was our first round of IVF, we had kind of told close family that we were doing the transfer, but didn't give them a time frame as to when we were going to tell them, you know, did it work? Did it not work? Um, and so we kind of hit a point where it had been so long after the transfer um, and we knew we were kind of in this limbo. Um, 
and we're also obviously having a difficult time kind of coming to terms with this of like, we don't know what's going to happen there. We can be heading toward a miscarriage uh, that that day to day was just really tough. So I did end up calling, uh, you know, calling my parents sort of saying, listen, here's where we are. Um, Olivia's pregnant, but uh, we don't know if this is actually going to work out. And so that was a, you know, it was a tough phone call because we didn't really know anything more than that at that point. It was just kind of wait and see. But at the very least, it kind of, uh, I think, helped bridge that gap of sharing something hard that was going on with us. And so everybody was, or at least close family was kind of led into that. Um, so it was helpful to just have them know what was going on because be- before that, it felt like all the pressure was just on me and Olivia to to make sense of something that couldn't be made sense of because we just didn't know what was going to happen. So, so that was kind of what happened there. The, the second miscarriage was like an all of a sudden, you know, uh, experience where we went into, we made it through sort of eight week, nine week ultrasounds uh, at the IVF clinic and then went in for our 12 week ultrasound at the uh, regular OB's office and there was no heartbeat. Uh, the, the, the baby had stopped developing. So that was total opposite, like rip off the band aid um, you know, pull the rug out from under our feet, like whatever cliche you want to, you want to have, that was like the earth shattering moment of thinking everything was going great and then totally having that taken away. So, you know, that was in some ways, you know, more devastating in the moment. Um, not just because we'd kind of gone along and, you know, we'd seen the baby's heartbeat. We had, we thought everything was going okay. Um, and so kind of in the same, same way at that point, um, you know, reached out to reached out to parents and also had reached out to some friends because in between those first two, these, these two miscarriages were our first and our second uh, IVF transfer. Um, so kind of happened all in a five or six month period. And so after the first one, um, wasn't the first phone call, but, uh, as we saw people, so the first, uh, miscarriage happened around November. And so we're kind of heading into the holiday season. And so as we saw some, some friends uh, over the holiday season, we, we chose to kind of share what had happened. Um, so, you know, they were more like the second, third, fourth phone call conversation, but, um, it ended up being good in a way because more people just knew what we were going through. Um, and so, you know, we were able to share what was happening more openly. Um, and it wasn't kind of all a shock at once. It was, it was like, here's what's the, Here's what's going on with both of those miscarriages. So it, it was very helpful to have, uh, you know, supportive family during that time. Um, and, and ultimately to have supportive friends too. Um, didn't, didn't make it any easier, but, but kind of lightened the burden, I would say. So two, two questions. One is, did your friends and family know what to say when this all happened? And two, you mentioned that this all happened around the holiday season. So obviously that's, that's got to be tough because it's family gathering times and probably a large trigger. Did that have any impact on how you celebrated the, the holidays or just family gatherings and celebration? Cause obviously everybody has kids around and you wanted to grow your family. Yeah. How did that yeah. impact you? Yeah. I think, um, you know, it's, it's hard to remember in some ways what people actually said. I think the, the, the most meaningful things that stick out were, were just the people who were there to, to give us a hug and, and cry with us and, and, um, kind of to say that they were there and they knew that they were trying to understand what we were going through. Um, I think definitely you can tell some people are more comfortable with it than others. Um, you know, we, we had some, definitely some 
some of those awkward things, right, that uh, people say uh, <laughs> who don't know how to deal with it quite as well. Not like close friends and family, but definitely had people we interacted with who would say things like, oh, just relax, like it'll happen, you know, all, all these terrible things that we, we like can laugh about a little bit in retrospect, but that really cut you in the moment uh, because they're uh, just not the the most thoughtful or caring thing to say of, you know, just, just relax when you, when you, you know, calm down, things will, things will work out or, you know, just uh, don't worry about doing, you know, treatments. Like you just need to go on a vacation and, you know, that <laughs> things will work out. And of course that's, you know, not what you want to hear in that moment. Um, but, Although, but fortunately a lot of other people were, were much better at that. <laughs> It's true that people don't always know what to say, but that comment yeah. about, oh, just take a vacation. I think that that itself, even though not necessarily what you wanted to hear, but taking a vacation when waiting for the two week wait, are you pregnant? Are you not pregnant? Or five day embryo, you know, that's a good idea just to take your mind, mind off of it. Yeah. Yeah. It is actually. And, and, you know, we, we did that sometimes with, uh, with the two week wait is, um, is did some, some little trips and I would totally, totally add my endorsement there as well. You, you can get so obsessive during that time. And that was definitely, uh, definitely my mode of being was like total obsession, probably bugging Olivia way more than she wanted to like, what are you feeling? Are you feeling anything? You're feeling any twinges? Are you feeling any, you know, pings? Like, you know, have you had enough, whatever the, you know, food is not pineapple core but like you know the stuff that they say to you have you had enough warm liquids and all these things and the cream of um, vitamins and the folic yeah. acid and yeah. all yeah. Of the concoctions that they make you take yeah yeah but that the is a great piece of advice um I, I i think that's such a great piece of advice and one thing we definitely walked away with is don't put off the things that are going to make you happy um because of infertility treatment. And, and I know that that's not always possible. I know there's times when like, if you're in the middle of a cycle, you got to kind of commit to being in a particular place. Um, but we definitely, and, and again, sure, sure you and others listening to this can relate. You get into this crazy thinking of like, oh, well, okay, we want to go and do this big trip. We've been meaning to see friends wherever in like California or Europe or wherever in, in three or four months. And you're like, well, what if, you know, what if we end up planning a cycle or what if we end up getting pregnant or what if, you know, what if one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, and I think in retrospect, we, we definitely had a time, uh, and I'm sure again, many can relate to this, uh, where we gave too much, too much power to that, like putting off plans and eventually had to say, we got to take care of ourselves. We got to do things that are going to make us happy. Um, and if that means, you know, moving a treatment cycle back a month, that's not going to be the end of the world. Um, we can't just put off all the things that give us happiness. Um, yeah. That's critical advice because yeah. many, many times I hear, oh yeah, I want to do this, but I can't because I'm going to be doing a cycle. I mean, there was just a case recently I spoke to someone, oh yeah, I want to plan a trip, but I'm going to be doing a cycle. So I can't necessarily go on this trip. I like it. People really think that, doing a cycle of IVF treatment is running their lives. But ultimately, the, one of the beautiful things about IVF and embryo transfers, in a way, you can decide when you want to do it. Obviously, you know, things mm -hmm. coordinate around when you're gonna, when they're going to get their periods and ovulation and all that. But generally speaking, you could say, I'm going to, I wanted to start a treatment this month. I want to start a treatment in two months. Like it's not, you have that flexibility and that choice yep. in most cases. Yeah, totally. 
Yeah. And then, so the second question you'd asked about sort of how did that, that affect our, our holiday plans? Um, uh, you know, we didn't really like change our plans. Cause I think again, to, to this conversation we we're just having around, like, don't put off the things you enjoy. Um, it was part of having the holidays happening was nice because it took our minds off of things. Um, but there were definitely some hard points. Uh, I definitely remember in that holiday season, we had two close, uh, couple friends tell us that they were expecting. Um, so, so those were both really hard to hear and kind of absorb. Um, and, you know, one of those couples we ended up having a really nice conversation because, because they had had a miscarriage the prior summer too. So we kind of got to have that bonding moment. Um, and, and, and they were really caring and thoughtful and, and, um, mindful about, mindful about how they shared that news with us, which I appreciated. Um, and you know, it's, it's hard to put that burden on, on other people, right? You don't, they don't necessarily always know what you're going through, but, uh, I, I appreciated that this couple in particular was very mindful about, you know, telling us individually before they put out, you know, a big announcement, um, telling us in, you know, kind of a thoughtful way and saying, I know what you've been through. Um, that was, that was really meaningful to us. And again, don't expect everybody to do that. I, I totally get, um, you know, for other folks that, you know, it, it's not, uh, it's not my role just because, you know, we're going through infertility to like suck all the joy out of your pregnancy announcement. Uh, that's, that's not the means, but I appreciated that, you know, this particular couple taking the time to tell us individually in a way that was mindful of what we had just been through. Um, and also sharing their, their story about their miscarriage too, which, which did, you know, just, just again, help build community and feel like we're not the only ones who've been down this path. Sure. On the subject of people sharing news, do you think that it's appropriate? I mean, sometimes people get triggered by it, but a couple saying all the time, trigger warning, oh, I'm pregnant now. Oh, I just had this new baby after going through IVF or after a miscarriage rainbow baby. You think Mm -hmm. it's appropriate and people should be putting trigger warnings on these things. I mean, obviously at the same time, I'm happy for them that they've that they're having a child and there's light at the end of the tunnel, but at the same time, it's a struggle for a lot of people and that might set them off. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. You know, it's, and it's so hard now because of the, just the times we live in and social media, we're exposed to so much more of that than I think we, we would have been 20, 30 years ago. Um, and there's good and bad in that, right? The, the, the good is what we're doing right now. We were able to connect and, and say, Hey, here's a, here's a venue where, you know, hundreds of people out there are going to hear another story from your podcast that's going to help them. That's really powerful. On the other hand, there's, there's that piece that you were just talking about, right? It's, it's hard not to go on Facebook, especially, um, again, like one of the other ironies I think of going through infertility is that it tends to happen at a point in your life when everybody else, you know, is also having babies. And so, um, you know, you're, you're probably going to be at that point where, the baby shower invitations start flooding in, the social me- media announcements start flooding in. So it can be very hard to avoid that. So I definitely appreciate um, people who are mindful about kind of being sensitive and how they share that news. Um, again, it's, it's hard. I, I don't expect it, I think, because it's, uh, you know, I understand if somebody hasn't been through it, uh, it's, you know, it's an opportunity to, to maybe share our story and, and help them understand what other people have gone through in, in their journey to become parents. Um, so I wouldn't say I necessarily am like 
expect everybody to do trigger warning, sensitive posts, stuff like that. Um, but I appreciate that within fo- within kind of the community, um, there is a mindfulness around that because it can be very triggering. And, and there's a lot of things that um, you never know what that's going to be. It can be a pregnancy announcement. It can be, you know, somebody sharing that they had a miscarriage, uh, you know, can, can also be really uh, triggering for anybody who's been that been down that path or, or goodness knows infant loss, things like that. Um, so I I think the good thing is that we're all kind of learning in the community about how to be thoughtful and mindful about that. And I think that's a good thing. It is. Do you still have any triggers? Um, I think the, definitely the hardest thing for me after our, um, after the way our second miscarriage went down with, you know, kind of going into the ultrasound, expecting everything to be okay. Um, every, every ultra, so, you know, Eliza, our, our lovely daughter was our third pregnancy. And so definitely with every ultrasound for Eliza, that was a hard triggering moment. Uh, you know, even, even honestly, as silly as it sounds, you know, we, we got to the point later in the pregnancy where, you know, my wife could feel Eliza moving, right. It was like, Eliza's in there, she's doing her thing. Um, <laughs> but even then, you know, we, we could be walking into the OB office five minutes earlier, you know, Olivia could have been like, Oh yeah, baby's moving everything the moment they put that ultrasound on was still a very nerve wracking moment. And I'd still be holding my breath, um, you know, holding, holding Olivia's hand for, for dear life. And, and just that, that was definitely um, a really traumatic moment that, that stuck with me. Um, and, and definitely earlier in, in the process, you know, it could be something as simple as being in the grocery store, turning down the, the next aisle and seeing, you know, a woman who's pregnant down the aisle. <laughs> um, there were so many times when I'd be, you know, shopping for groceries or in Target or whatever. Um, I'd turn down the aisle and see, hey, there's a, you know, a, a woman who's eight, nine months pregnant down there. And I'd flip the cart around. I'd be like, nope, going the other way. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, actually- and I don't feel that anymore, but um, I think you know, there's, there's definitely a healing that happens through having been very fortunate to, to have Eliza and, and, um, you know, have, have a child who we can hold in our hands and, and definitely recognize that we're among the fortunate group in, in the community who can say that. Um, so that has helped kind of heal that feeling, um, of just like, you know, we can get a, a baby shower invitation, see somebody else announcing pregnancy now. And, and that's, that's cool. That's okay. But, uh, definitely, you know, remember that, that piece about the ultrasound, uh, with Eliza. It's actually interesting part. you say about the ultrasound because my wife, she is still struggles with that. You know, every time you go in for an ultrasound, is there a heartbeat? Is there not a heartbeat? You know, mm-hmm. that trauma is still there. In fact, she doesn't even want to look at, look at the ultrasound screen. I mean, yeah. I think it's nice that they that they show they want to play to make sure there's a heartbeat, but at the same time, it's still painful because that trauma it doesn't really go away; it sticks with you. Yeah, yeah, and it can be hard to you know, depending. It, it's I think it's hard sometimes to have, to feel like you have a venue to give feedback to medical providers, but but we've ha- definitely had an experience, you know, uh, ultrasound techs who are very conscientious and and you know, the ones, ones we were fortunate to see during Eliza's pregnancy and, and others uh, at our IVF clinic, very conscientious about, you know, when you are, are doing those early ultrasounds and you're bringing up the picture, like, tell us what's happening right away. Please do not just like, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, to, to let us know because we need that reassurance. We're, we're really worked up in that moment. So, uh, but that can be hard. Definitely have heard from, from other folks where it was, where they did not have such good experiences. So. What do you think clinicians need to know 
about men when they're going through IVF with their spouse or whether they're male infertility, because so many times I've seen even post miscarriage where we go in, oh, there's no heartbeat. We go to a clinic. They don't ask us how, how are you doing? Their focus is on their female, which was the patient. And I think there just needs to be more sensitivity into the clinicians because a lot of times they're saying, oh, this is what's good for her now. Let's just get it over with. They're not really thinking about the sensitivities or the emotional side of things of how things play out. I think they're thinking more of how do we save this person's life? And they're not thinking on the other side of the glass of let's think rationally here. Let's try and help the couple through this journey and not just do a procedure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you just said is the main thing. It's, it's really incumbent upon clinicians to think through how to help and support the couple through the journey. And, and as you said, think about not just the medical aspects of what they're going through, but also how are they doing emotionally? And I'll say our uh, reproductive endocrinologist was always really wonderful about this. Every conversation we had uh, with our doctors started with, how are you doing? You know, how are you feeling about this? Whether it was, you know, um, just a conversation to kind of set up and plan for another cycle, or if it was our, you know, debrief discussion after one of our losses, it always started with, how are you doing? Um, and similar with, with a lot of, you know, ultrasound techs, folks like that, we saw the, the ones who kind of stand out as, as being great uh, caregivers in addition to clinicians were ones who just took that time to say, how are you doing? And, and to, you know, to check in with, with both of us. Uh, again, I didn't feel like I expected that. And maybe that's, maybe that's on me, right. For, for not having enough of a uh, kind of an expectation at that point for being involved. And I think I also certainly understand from, from a lot of clinicians and discussions we've had is that, that, you know, it's not always typical for them to see the male partner be, be very involved. So I think there's some, some work there to be done in terms of just, shifting expectations around, uh, what, what, you know, men who are partners going through infertility, um, kind of expect out of their experience. Because I do think, you know, deep down, despite the fact, as we said earlier, you know, emotional support and reflection is not necessarily a skill that men are kind of taught or put a premium on. Um, I think when it, when it boils down, every male partner wants to be supportive, wants to be involved in the process. Um, we might not be as well prepared to do that, but that's really what we want deep down. Just want to be supportive to ourselves, supportive to our partner and to feel like a, like we're involved in the process. So, um, you know, I think simple things like checking in with, with both partners and saying, you know, how are you doing? How are you feeling about this? Um, and I think it's also critical to, to make sure for cl- clinicians to kind of take time as you're having discussions about medical processes to, to kind of press pause occasionally and say, how is this information hitting you? You know, what do you think about this? What questions do you have? You know, did any of that not make sense? Um, because it's a lot of information to absorb. Uh, and I think one thing that can be uh, one kind of mindset, I think that's very strong for men is, you know, we're, we're expected to be the ones who have the answers and who take action and who, um, you know, are, are the ones who are like, great, what's the next step? What are we doing here? You know, kind of just, action in general is valued uh, in society for men. So uh, I think when men feel like they don't understand what's going on or that they, uh, you know, have just left a conversation where all the medical information went 30,000 feet over their heads, um, that can, that can cause men to kind of shut down and feel like they're not able to be part of the conversation. So I think making that space for, for checking in and providing ample explanation is really important. 
Absolutely. And I really think also men need to take an active role in the IVF process, even post miscarriage. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So don't just let your, your spouse or significant other give the shots themselves. Obviously that's something you should be involved with, whether it be supporting them, doing it for them, listening to their favorite music, just going above and beyond when they're going through that to give them yep. that emotional support. Cause right. We're trained to want to fix things, but IVF is not necessarily something that, that we can fix or even after a miscarriage, you know, it's just, just human nature. So the fact that you're able to give that emotional support in whatever way possible through, through acts of kindness or through doing the shot or doing something that, that they enjoy that, that could help as well. And I really think men just need to bone up and say, wait a second, something's positive is going to be created here. I know it sucks. I know it's not fun. I know it's a journey, but at the same time, just, just be there for them through it. And even on, 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 on the male side of things, male factor infertility, got to take yourself in a way that to believe in it, you know, you're not, you're not alone in it. Yeah. It's, it's such a key, um, you know, knowing you're not alone and, um, and just reaching out and connecting. And, and I think, you know, what you said about men feeling the pressure to fix things, it rings really true with me. Um, I think that's definitely a, another really powerful societal expectation. Uh, you know, you talked about Dr. Google earlier. I definitely fell into times where I was kind of, you know, really on the Dr. Google train during our journey. Um, and I think it came from that drive to wanting to fix things, um, wanting to say like, you know, if I can just pour through like five, six, seven more research articles and like, maybe I'll find that one thing that we can bring to the RE and that'll fix it. Um, and yeah, as you said, that's, that's, it's just unfortunately not that simple. The best we can do is stay really involved, um, make sure we're, we're, doing little things like um, figuring out ways we can, we can be supportive, but also taking times for ourselves. I think that's another thing that can be really hard, hard for men is figuring out ways to take time for yourself that are, that are constructive. And so, um, you know, I definitely tried out and and have continued to do things like meditation, um, you know, through our, our journey and even now, um, and that might look different for other people, for, for other guys, it might be, um, you know, it might be prayer. It might be, um, you know, just going to the gym. Uh, it might be getting out and going for a hike. It might be cooking. I don't know, but there's a million things, but, um, I think a big challenge and something I'd encourage every, every guy who's out there listening to think through is, is what are the, the ways, what are the one or two things that really make you feel good and like your best self? Um, and, and make sure you're making time to do those two, because that's important. You can't show up for your partner if you can't show up for yourself. Those are really, really good points and definitely would advise what Keegan just said. I mean, that's unbelievable stuff. Take time for yourself. Take care of yourself. It's tough. But remember, you need to take care of yourself and, and come. Yes, it's a journey, but you also, if you're not taking care of yourself, then you're definitely not going to be able to take care of your spouse and your partner going through this. Yep. Keegan, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. How do people get in touch with you? Is the best way to, or just order your book on Amazon or email you? How do people get in touch with you? Yeah, I would, I would love to hear from folks in in any variety of ways. You can find me at www.theivfdad.com. You can find instructions there on how to order the book that's uh, coming out on July 1st. Um, would love for you to check that out. You can also reach me uh, on Instagram at theivfdad. 
Uh, and you can also reach me. Uh, I, I love to just hear email from folks, whether it's a story, a question, just, uh, hey, here's something that struck me. Um, like I said, the, the most important thing in doing this work um, and why I think it's so important that um, there's there's more of us working in this space of supporting men uh, is that stories matter and connections matter more than anything else. Uh, and if uh, I can kind of ease one person's journey, then I feel like I've, I've, the work has been worth it. Um, so yeah, we'd love to hear from folks. Um, so the IVF dad at gmail.com, uh, you can definitely reach out there as well, but yeah, looking forward to, to sharing the book, um, in July. I hope folks will take a look at it. I hope it'll be really useful. Um, yeah, and it'll be available on Amazon. So thanks so much for having me. It's been great to chat. My pleasure. And guys, remember you're not alone. Please feel free to reach out, call the hotline, listen to the podcast, get involved. And I have really exciting announcement to get people excited for to take what we're doing with the podcast and everything with Men's Helpline. We're going to be doing an exciting fundraising campaign, hopefully the end of August. So stay tuned for that. If you want to get involved so we can continue helping other men through this journey, we got to stay strong, help one another, and uh, we'll get through it. Keep Keep strong, keep doing what you're doing through through the journey. Keep talking and sharing your stories. And it will it will happen. You gotta believe. You've just listened to another great episode of Men Talk with Daniel Landau. If you've suffered from miscarriage, infertility, stillbirth, or infant loss and want to open up about it, reach out. We'd love to have you on the show. You can also join our Facebook group, or if you'd like to get involved and start a chapter in your neighborhood, visit our website, www.menshelpline.org today. Until next week, stay strong, and remember, you're not alone.